Welcome to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It's a great day to be here to worship Him. This morning, those words were not lost on me. I need Thee, O oh Lord, I need Thee, especially as we've been working our way through the book of Zechariah. I actually thought as I was singing, Oh Lord, no, I, like, I need Thee right now. Um, as I prepare to stand up and declare Your Word from Zechariah 9. So, with that in mind, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy and Your love. God, I praise You for an opportunity that we have now to be here together, to gather, to lift up our voices and praise You, to reflect on Your goodness, Your greatness, the the mercy that You've shown us, the love that You've shown us. God, I pray that as we do so, God, that we would worship You in spirit and in truth, that You would work mightily and miraculously in and through this time, and God, that You would use it for Your glory. God, that You'd help us to not only hear what Your Word says, but to live in light of it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. So we've been working our way, as I mentioned, through the book of Zechariah. Today we find ourselves in Zechariah chapter 9. And I'm going to give you just a brief background. I've given a background every single week. The background is that Zechariah has written to the Jews who are returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Zechariah is a, a contemporary of Haggai. Haggai writes and encourages the Jews to start the work of the temple. Zechariah steps in and tells them to continue, but also to focus on their relationship with the Lord. Don't just do the work of the Lord, but also return to the Lord Himself. And in this time, we see the Jews struggling. We see God's people struggling because the temple isn't what it once was. That There are challenges and there are struggles. And they see the promises of God, and yet they don't see the promises of God coming to fulfillment quite the way they expected and in the timing with which they expected them to happen. And really, in reality, we should be able to relate to this as we see the promises of God, and yet, it's very easy to declare the promises of God on Sunday morning, to talk about God's grace, His goodness, His greatness, to lift our voices in song, and then Monday morning, to think, where is the Lord anyway? Is He in any of this? And this is what we see with the Jews as Zechariah addresses them in chapter 9. So with that background in mind, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Zechariah chapter 9. The burden of the Word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And Hamath also, which borders on it, And Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea. And she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded." Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited, and a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God, and will be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes, 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And He will speak peace to the nations. And His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of My covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. For I will bend Judah as My bow and I will fill the bow with Ephraim and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them and His arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them and they will devour and trample on the sling stones. They will drink and be boisterous as with wine. They will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar, and the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of His people. For they are as the stones of a crown, sparkling in His land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs. Grain will make the young men flourish, and new wine the virgins. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So, for the purpose of our time together, I've decided, I've divided this text into three sections. These are not arbitrary. Oh, I'm spilling water. Do you know why water came out of that? That's an inside joke for those of you who haven't been here very long. So I've divided the text into three sections. Sections. These aren't arbitrary, but instead follow the flow of the text. The verses 1 through 8, and then verses 9 through 10, and then verses 11 through 17. And within these sections, we see a pattern whereby the middle section, verses 9 and 10, serves as the climax of this text. And that is in part why these verses, verses 9 and 10, are so familiar to us, so they should be so familiar to us, and why we will look at these verses last. So in other words, we're going to look at 1 through 8, and then 11 through 17, and then come back and examine 9 and 10. So without further ado, let's dig into our text. The first point in our sermon outline is, number one, the Lord remembers His people. Number one, the Lord remembers His people. Look again at verses, uh, verse 1. It says, "...the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and with Damascus as its resting place." In other words all the way from Hadrach, which we don't even know where that is. There's, we're not sure exactly. There's scholars debate and they, they argue as to exactly where it was. We don't know. We don't need to know. The point is it's all the way from there all the way to Damascus. Probably Hadrach was a land in the north and Damascus a little bit further south. So in other words, it's from there to there. It's everywhere. He says, for the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. There's a couple of interesting things to note in this verse. First of all, Zechariah begins by saying, the burden of the word of the Lord. The Hebrew word is sometimes translated oracle. And in your Bible, it may say an oracle of the Lord, which carries this idea, there's often this idea associated with this term of judgment. 
that the prophets often brought a word of judgment from the Lord. They were burdened. They felt this heavy burden as they brought this, this word to the people. Secondly, the phrase, for the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. This seems like an interjection of sorts. He's listing these places. He says from here to here, and then he goes on to list a bunch of other places. But before he says that, he says, for because the eyes of men, especially those of Israel, are looking at the Lord. They're toward the Lord. And it seems to be that what he's driving at, what he's getting at, is that everybody is looking to the Lord to see if His promises will indeed be fulfilled. You brought us back here. You've promised us that you're going to build your temple. You've promised that you're going to raise up this nation in a mighty and awesome way. When's it going to happen? When is it going to happen? How is this going to even take place? And even the nations around are saying, judgment, He says He's bringing judgment. Where is this judgment? And even today, the world looks to the Lord. All eyes are on the Lord going, where's the promise of His coming? You say He's coming, but where is it? Show me where it is. And even believers, in some sense, they look to the Lord and they go, uh, maybe with less hostility, but they look to the Lord and they go, I know you said you're coming, but, and you're coming quickly, but when is it? It's, I mean, it's been 2,000 years. It's been a long time, Lord, and you said you're coming back quickly. So in this sense, we have all the eyes of the people looking to the Lord to see whether He's going to fulfill His promise. And verses 2-8 through goes on and says, And Hamath also, which borders on it, so another area, and Tyre and Sidon, that the, the, this word is coming to Tyre and Sidon, this judgment is coming to Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, he says, for Tyre built herself a fortress. Tyre was an incredible stronghold of old, a place that was virtually impenetrable until Alexander the Great comes along and destroys Tyre, and Tyre was wise, she built herself a fortress, and piled up silver like dust. That's more money than Donald Trump, that's what he's saying. Piled up lots and lots and lots of silver, like dust on the ground, silver everywhere. And gold like the mire of the streets. Gold like you find mud in the streets. That's how much silver and gold there was. He says, even though all that took place, the silver's not going to save her, the gold's not going to save her, behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea. And she will be consumed with fire. She's going to be utterly decimated. Ashkelon will see it and will be afraid. Ashkelon's going to see it and say, whoa, what is going on? Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited, and a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. All of this is meant to point to the breadth of God's power. These enemy nations, God will will execute judgment and justice upon them. It's interesting, not all of Israel's enemies are actually mentioned here, and there's a number that are not mentioned that you would expect to be mentioned, like Egypt. But these enemies instead are enemies that are living in the land that God has promised His people. And He says, I am coming back. I will indeed execute judgment and justice on these nations who have hurt My people. The breadth of My power goes from all the way from east to west, from north to south. And then notice, 
that the text changes to the first person. It says, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. So now we have God speaking Himself in the first person. I will do this. I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. You can't help but think, yeah, get those Philistines. But then He says, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Their idols, that they, this, these idols that they're, that they're preparing, this shedding of blood and these unclean animals that they're eating, these horrible sacrifices and these things that are going on, I'm going to take it from them. Then he says, then they will also be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron, that's the northern part of Philistia, will be like a Jebusite. The Jebusites were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. So, And Ekron is going to be like those who lived in Jerusalem prior to the Jews. They're going to be like incorporated into Jerusalem. And you can't help but think, wait, what, what, wait what's going on here? So he's executing these judgments, and then he says, and the Philistines, I'm going to make them like a remnant for our God. They're going to be like a clan of Judah. In fact, I'm going to incorporate them into the people of God. This is shocking news from God. God says, yes, my justice will come. Yes, it'll be the breadth of my power will be seen, and the depth of my power will be seen. But in that depth of power, you will also see Grace, incredible grace, that those who are the enemies of God are shown grace and incorporated into the people of God. It's not the same true today. That God will come back and He will execute justice. And yet, praise God for His grace that there are some who will turn to the Lord. That there are some who will abandon their sacrifices. That there are some who will abandon their false worship and worship the true God. So it points to the depth of His power. He says, But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of Him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them any more. No oppressor. For now I have seen with my eyes. Many argue that this description of the conquering of the nations points to Alexander the Great, which happened some 200 years after Zechariah wrote. And if you follow the conquest of Alexander the Great, he actually follows the same pattern of city to city. And it's interesting, he actually, history shows us that he passed by Jerusalem and came back, which is very interesting in light of the text, actually saying, because of him who passes by and returns. And many say, this is Alexander the Great. This is all about Alexander the Great. The Great, praise God, that we can see this fulfillment of prophecy. However, this text, like all of Zechariah, really points beyond Alexander the Great and merely Alexander. Yes, Alexander the Great pointed to the truth of God's Word even as an unbeliever and the fulfillment, the partial fulfillment of this prophecy. But certainly it points to something far Greater than that, especially when we read verse 8. And no oppressor will pass over them any more. Think of Israel. Think of Israel today. Talk about oppressors. This is a nation that's had oppressor after oppressor after oppressor. We have countries in our world that have said that they would love nothing more than to see Israel wiped off the face of the earth. These are leaders of countries. These are supposed to be intelligent men, by the way, saying these things about God's people and God's land. 
that they want to wipe this entire country off the face of the earth. So we live in a world where we can't say no oppressor has passed over them anymore. Their history has been oppressor after oppressor after oppressor passing over them. It's only a partial fulfillment in this before. But there's a greater fulfillment coming. So the point of this section, though, is that the Lord remembers His people. Notice that in verse 1, He says, The eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. The eyes are looking to the Lord. All of men's eyes are looking at Him, saying, when is His promise going to be fulfilled? So that's verse 1, while verse 8 ends with the Lord saying, for now I have seen with my eyes. You're looking to Me, but don't, don't misunderstand. I have seen with my eyes as well. I haven't forgotten. This is a common theme throughout Scripture, and especially the book of Zechariah. Just as their eye was on him, so also his eye was on his people. We know this from Psalm 33, verses 18 through 22, which says this Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul. He's looking at them, and he's not just looking distantly, by the way. It's not like God is just looking on at his people and. Well, you know, I see that Dan's going through this trial right now. Or I see that Bill is in this trial. Instead, he's looking on us. He's remembering us is the point. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness. Verse 19, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in You. In other words, He doesn't just look on with disinterest. He looks on with care. His eye is on His people. That's why 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. He looks on, He sees what's happening, and He listens also says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil in 1 Peter 3. So having seen the first point in our sermon outline, number one, the Lord remembers His people. The Lord has not forgotten His people. Let's consider the second point in our sermon outline. Number two, the Lord sets His people free. The Lord sets His people free. Look at verses 11-17 through 17 of our text. Specifically, let's start with 11-13. through 13. There we read, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, in other words, because of the promise I've made with you, this covenant, this promise, this agreement, because of this, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Think a well, a pit that doesn't have water in it. Think Joseph being thrown into a pit by his brothers. A place where there's no escape a dungeon, a place where prisoners were thrown. I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold. It's interesting. It's a different word here than that used of Tyre. But nonetheless, I think there's, a, there's some uh, wordplay here going on. He says, Tyre built this. They built themselves a fortress, a stronghold. They were a strong city. And they were destroyed. And he says, you return to the stronghold. Not like the fortress that Tyre had, but return to the stronghold, the Lord Himself. And that's the message of Zechariah again and again. Return to the stronghold. He says, return to the stronghold, O prisoners 
who have the hope. This very day, I am declaring that I will restore double to you. For I will bend Judah as my bow, and I will fill the bow with Ephraim. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. A couple of interesting notes. Some people argue, some commentators argue that this couldn't have been written in the time that it was because he mentions Greece, and Greece wasn't a world power at this point. Greece was quickly becoming a world power. And not only that, but he mentions all of these other nations who in the future would dominate, who in the future, who had, who had caused trouble for God's people. And he says, even you, O Greece, I will do this. So lest we put uh, Alexander the Great on too high of a pedestal here, he says, I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, against your, uh, your, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. It's also interesting to note that he says, I will restore double to you. We don't know whether he's going to restore double what they once had or just he's going, to, he's going to return what they once had. It doesn't matter. The point is, I'm going to bless you richly. I'm going to bless you mightily. I'm going to set you free and I'm going to bless you. It's interesting to me that debate exists today as to what God is talking about with the phrase, blood of my covenant. The phrase, blood, he says, because of the blood of my covenant with you. And this phrase for the people of Zechariah's day would have made them think back to Genesis 15. And we read Genesis 15. If you look at verses 9 through 17, you see this. God says, He says to Abram, He says, Bring me these animals. And what I want you to do is I want you to cut them in half and I want you to lay them on either, to lay them on separate sides of the ground. To lay the halves across from each other. And then he puts Abram to sleep and he walks through the animals. And I remember being in Bible college reading this and thinking, this is the weirdest stuff I've ever heard in my life. I was a new Christian, had just really had never really read through the Bible much. I don't know if I'd been even all the way through it. And, and I read this and I'm thinking, what is going on here? But here we see this. We see this agreement by God. God walks through the animals, which would have been a sign of the signing of the covenant. It would have been a symbol recognizing the agreement to honor what has said will be done. He walks through the midst of them. And it's interesting that Abram's asleep because God walks through them alone. So it's a covenant that's not dependent on Abram or his faithfulness. It's a unilateral covenant. It's only dependent on God. God said, I will do this. And immediately the people would have thought back to God's covenants, and this covenant in particular. And in verse 18 of Genesis 15, we read this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Prizite and the Rephium and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. By the way, when you hear hard words in Scripture like this, just say them with authority. That's what I do. You just, just make it sound like you know what you're talking about and um, say it with authority and usually people don't question you. But the point is this. They would have thought back to this passage of Scripture. They would have thought back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And others say that it refers to Exodus 24.8, which is the only place in the New Testament where this exact wording, the blood of your covenant, is used. And that's possible too. But I think... The point is that they were looking back to these promises of God. And this text, in reality, 
Exodus 24 and Genesis 15, these texts ultimately point forward to something greater in and of themselves. So while they would have looked back to these promises of God, they knew that those promises pointed forward to something greater, a greater fulfillment. So while the people would have heard that these words from the Lord, they would have heard them and they would have immediately thought back to the promises of God, they would have known that they had not seen their ultimate fulfillment. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that all these things were meant to point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read Hebrews 9, you read about sacrifices time after time after time. That there's, where there's a covenant, there's a necessity of blood and that there's the blood of goats and bulls and, and ashes of a heifer being sprinkled and all these things that there, all of these things point forward to something greater. They happen year after year after year. He says, and then we read in Hebrews 9, he says, and these things were a mere copy of that which was true. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. So ultimately, when we read the blood of my covenant with you, we should think of Hebrews. We should think of the words of Jesus who at the Last Supper said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When we read, because of the blood of my covenant, I've set your prisoners free. We should definitely think of God's promises to the Old Testament saints. However, we should also realize that His promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in the blood of Jesus. And while the people of Zechariah's day didn't fully understand this, we have the the grace and the, the wonder of being able to look back on the other side of history. All they saw was, they looked ahead and they said, God's promising great and mighty and awesome things. We don't know how this is all going to work. But they trusted the Lord. We look back with clarity. How much more should we trust the Lord? This points to the blood of Jesus, and this becomes even more clear when we see what the Lord will do when He sets His people free. Look at verses 14 through 17. 14 through 17 says this, Then the Lord will appear over them. So we see this threefold promise or these threefold things that he's going to do. He will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. In other words, he will be with them. He's going to appear with them and he's going to march with them in battle. Then he says, the Lord of hosts will defend them or he's going to protect them. He says, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones. The weapons of war are going to be destroyed. And they will drink and be boisterous as with wine. And they will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar, overflowing. In other words, He will protect them and give them peace and prosperity. He goes on and says, And the Lord will save them 
in that day as the flock of his people, for they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land, for what comeliness and beauty will be theirs. He will rescue them and return them to the land of promise. That's the point here. He says grain will make young men flourish and new wine. The virgins, he says they're going to have grain. They're going to have new wine. I'm going to save them. They're going to be like my people. They're going to be, I'm going to be like a shepherd who shepherds them in, the, in his land. I'm going to rescue them and return them to the land of promise. So God is promising to the people of Zechariah's day. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to give you prosperity. And I'm going to bring you back to this land, all of you. Not just this little remnant of 40,000 people that's in this land that's destroyed, but I'm going to give you something beyond what you can imagine. So as we read this, we should praise God for His promise to the people. We should also praise God for the blood of Jesus Christ. The, the shed blood of Christ and the freedom that has been given to us in Him. For we know that these promises find their ultimate fulfillment in the church. And as the church, we know that He is with us. He said, he said I will appear over them and I'll march with them. And He is with us. He marches with us in battle and in the storms of life. He said, I'll defend them. And He protects and shields us. He gives us the victory and blesses us, giving us peace and prosperity. And He said, I will save them. In the same way, He cares for us and brings us to a place of ultimate rescue. Eternal life in a place called heaven. So having seen that the Lord remembers His people, and the Lord sets His people free, let's consider the third and final point in our sermon outline. The third and final point is number three, the Lord gives His people reason to rejoice. He remembers His people, He sets His people free, and He gives them reason to rejoice. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is uh, descendants of, of Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. It's a name given to the people, to the Jewish people. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river doesn't matter which river, by the way, commentators argued. doesn't matter. The point is from the river to the ends of the earth. Let's spend a few minutes considering the description of this king. Number one, he is just. This is no Alexander the Great, or Barack Obama, or Donald Trump for that matter, right? This is not even King David for that matter. This king is perfectly righteous. That's why Isaiah 11, we read of the coming king, the the prophet speaks of the coming king and says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike down the earth, strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belly about his waist. 
He will be perfectly righteous and just in all that He does. Secondly, we see that He comes bringing salvation. Not only is He just, but He comes bringing salvation. That's why Isaiah 53 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, He goes on to say, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. So not only is He just and coming, bringing salvation, but we see from the text that He is humble. He is humble. Isaiah 53 says, For he, he grew up before Him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was humble. He was lowly. He wasn't considered much to those who looked upon him. And then fourthly, he comes to bring peace. We know this because he comes mounted on a donkey. Um, We often relate the riding of a donkey with humility. And we like to think, well, he comes humble, he's coming in humility, and he's riding on a donkey. Right? Uh, Because in our culture, we think of donkeys as very uh, pitiful animals. In fact, I went to the fair with the baddies, and we were looking at the animals, and I thought, oh, there's the donkeys. They just evoke a joke. Right? Because they just seem like a joke of an animal in our culture. However, as you've probably heard, and we've said this even from this pulpit, in ancient times, it wasn't uncommon for kings to ride on donkeys. They weren't viewed the way they're viewed today. And there's some debate about the time of Jesus where horses were revered. Yes, horses were revered, but donkeys still were not the the way they're viewed today. So the picture here does not undermine his kingship, but instead underscores it. Kings rode on donkeys. It simply shows that He was coming not to make war. A king would have ridden into the city. Jesus would have ridden into the city. When we read the Gospels, when we read about the triumphal entry, He would have ridden into the city on a war horse if He came to make war. But instead, He was pronouncing something. He was saying, I'm coming to bring peace. Riding on a donkey. He was also claiming to be the Messiah. Quite clearly and plainly. He will be the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah 9 calls Him. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He will bring peace, but He will also be a King. So we read this, and we read this description of this King, and He is just. He comes bringing salvation. He is humble. He comes to bring peace. These words of Zechariah 9.9 should sound very familiar to us, as I mentioned, because they're quoted in both Matthew 21 and John 12. Two texts which describe Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem just before He was crucified on what is now known as Palm Sunday. In fact, we read in those texts, Matthew 21, starting in verse 1, "...when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there, 
and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Which prophet? Well, he goes on and says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. In other words, this is meant to fulfill what Zechariah was talking about. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their coats on him, and he sat on their coats. And then in John 12, we read this. On the next day, a large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of the palm trees, and they went out to meet him, and began to shout. This is why we call it Palm Sunday. They laid the branches down, they began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! Jesus, it says, finding a donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. As he rode into the city, there was no mistake who he claimed to be. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. And the people exclaimed, Hosanna! Salvation has come! Lord, save and salvation has come! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They exclaimed, He's the king. However, what's noticeably missing from these gospel accounts, and the reason that I read them, is what's missing, while they quote verse 9, what's missing is verse 10 of Zechariah 9.9. Look at verse 10 again with me. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, while Jesus' first coming fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, it won't be until His second coming, His return, that we see the ultimate fulfillment of Zechariah 9.10. We see a similar thing in Luke. When Jesus, He enters the, he enters the uh, synagogue and He gets up to read and He reads from Isaiah 61. And He reads part of Isaiah 61, and he stops mid-sentence. He says this, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover sight to the blind, to set, those who are, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and sat down. And gave it to the attendant. And all eyes of the synagogue were on him. Because he stops mid-sentence. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, he says, I came, I'm coming to fulfill part of this prophecy. I am the king. And I will bring peace. But the day of vengeance is yet to come. The day of the Lord, as we talked about in Sunday school, is a day that is yet to come when Christ returns. The day of vengeance of our God. And in the same way, we see Zechariah 9, 9 being fulfilled, but 9, 10 is yet to come. We think about the return of Christ, and I would encourage you to read Revelation 19. We read Revelation 19 where Jesus brings justice, particularly verses 11-16. through He comes riding on a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And with righteousness he judges, and he wages war, and he's clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood. 
And from his mouth comes a sharp sword that he may strike down the nations. He brings justice to the nations. So we live in this time between Zechariah 9.9 and Zechariah 9.10 awaiting his return. Awaiting the day when he will return and he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. There will be no more war. And the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to all the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So by way of review, number one, the Lord remembers his people. Number two, the Lord sets his people free. And number three, the Lord gives his people reason to rejoice. Not only for what he has done, but also what he will do in the return of his son. And the people of old, they looked forward with not clarity. They didn't understand. They just knew that he was coming. They didn't know that he was coming in two advents. And we know that now. But nonetheless, just as they look forward to the coming of the Messiah, so we can look forward to the coming of the Messiah, knowing that some of these things have been fulfilled in part, but they will be fulfilled in their totality when Jesus Christ returns. So how do we, here's the question, so how do we as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? Well, we need to fix our eyes on the Lord. We need to fix our eyes on Him. We live in a world, I said this last week, that is confusing at best and that is troubling. We live in a world where we see injustice again and again and again. You turn on the news and you see injustice. You open up your computer and you see injustice. And you think, how long, Lord? We need to fix our eyes on the Lord. We live in a world that's, that's not... We're blessed beyond all people of all time as Christians living in this place here and now. But that doesn't mean that our lives are free from trouble, folks. It was very real trouble. So as we experience that trouble, we should fix our eyes on the Lord and, and know that He remembers His people. He hasn't forgotten Him. Just as we look to Him and go, How long, Lord? When are you coming back? When are your promises going to, when are they going to be fulfilled? And I've laid in bed at night and said, Come, Lord Jesus. Many a night. He says, Just as your eyes are on me, so also my eyes are on you. I see what's going on. I have not forgotten my promises. So we fix our eyes on the Lord, knowing that He remembers His people. Number two, we fix our eyes on the Lord, knowing that He sets His people free. He's with us. He marches with us in the battle and in the storms of life. He shields us. He protects us. He gives us the victory. He cares for us and brings us to a place of final rescue that ultimately He will carry through to completion the work that He started in us. So we fix our eyes on Him knowing that He sets us free. And thirdly, we fix our eyes on the Lord knowing that both the first and second coming of His Son, that they give us reason to rejoice. That we rejoice in the first coming, knowing that freedom is real today. That He has given us freedom over sin. That He's given us victory in this life. And the victory is real. And yet, we look forward to His second coming as well, when that freedom will be fully realized. No more sin. No more death when that freedom is fully realized in Christ. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to fix your eyes on the Gospel. What Christ died for, 
That God remembers His people. That you can be part of the family of God. The Scripture is clear that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That every one of us have sinned. That even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. But He remembers His promises to His people. And He sets His people free. That you can turn to the Lord today just like the Philistines who had idol sacrifices sacrifices in their mouth, who had chunks of meat left over. This is the picture here. Chunks of meat left over in their teeth from the idol sacrifices. They were disgusting. That just as we are disgusting before God in all of our filth and sin, that He can fix that which is broken. That His grace and mercy extends even to them. That yes, there's justice. Yes, there's judgment. But there's also grace in turning to Jesus. So I'd encourage you to turn to the Lord today knowing that He sets His people free. And then I'd encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus. For all of us, for believers, that we look back to the first coming of Jesus and we know that that freedom is real. And yet we look for that freedom. We long for that freedom to be fully realized and the return of His Son, Jesus. So in a few minutes, we're going to sing a song. And if you looked in your bulletin, you're probably thinking, why are we singing Christmas songs today? We're singing Joy to the World. Um, we're going to be singing in a minute. And trust me, I'm not going to lead this. I Rest easy, right? I'm not going to lead the singing. But in a few minutes, we're going to sing Joy to the World. This song was written by Isaac Watts. And it's a... A paraphrase, a loose paraphrase, if you will, of Psalm 98, which actually, in the Old Testament, points forward to the second coming of the Messiah, quite clearly. And Isaac Watts wrote this uh, hymn with the view of Jesus returning to earth in mind. Not the birth, not the, not the incarnation of Christ, but instead the return of Christ. And when we think about these words, that should be somewhat clear to us. Joy to the world, the whole world, right? Joy to the world. The coming of Christ was not a joy to the world, by the way, the first time around. And initially it won't be to the world the second time around, but eventually it will. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth, all of the earth, receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat that sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. What a beautiful picture of the return of Jesus and how all that is broken and wrong in this world will be made right by Him, our King. So is it wrong to sing this as a Christmas song? No, not at all. Not at all, because the coming of Jesus as a baby pointed forward to the return of Jesus. And ultimately, we can sing that these things have been realized in our hearts and in a kingdom without walls. That we are part of His kingdom. That He is a glory in our midst. But we look forward to the establishment of His kingdom here on earth when these things will be fully realized. Not just in our hearts. Not just in a remnant of the people. But in all 
who are left. So as we sing this song, let's remember the Lord. Let's remember His grace. Let's remember these truths from this passage. That the Lord remembers His people. That He sets His people free. And He gives us reason to rejoice.